Yeah, welcome everybody. So excited about today, about 4th of July weekend. Hope you are too. About starting a brand new series with you during the month of July. As you can see, it's called Practically Spiritual. We're going to take some concepts that may seem a bit out of reach to you, maybe a little vague or a little too spiritual, quote unquote, and trying to make them practical and applicable to your life right now. As a matter of fact, you can look at the seat back in front of you, and there should be in there a little card with some questions on it. I want to direct your attention to that, and you can, this isn't for you necessarily to take notes with, but something for you to use as a tool, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow morning, to help you apply what you hear today. So, uh, over this next month, we'll be taking a look at what it means to live a life of prayer, uh, of faith, of breakthrough, of hearing God's voice, and this morning I want to start off by just talking about vision. Vision, a concept that may seem a little, you know, otherworldly or vague or nebulous. And to get to the heart of what it means to be a person of vision, I just want to ask a simple question, and this is this. What's your why? What's your why? What's your why? What, what is it, uh, excuse me, why do you do whatever it is that you do in life? And, or why is it that we do what we do here this morning with all this? Uh, Why is it that you do what you do? See, why questions are powerful questions. Why questions force clarification. Why questions get to the heart of vision. Why questions push you to describe what you see. Why questions push you to describe why you behave in certain ways and not others. And so as a Christian person, especially today, what's your why? What's our why? What's your vision? What's our vision for life? And if you don't have an answer to that, if you don't know that, you'll end up living like Proverbs 29 says. It says, where there's no vision, what do people do? Oh, yeah, they perish. Thank you. Some of you grew up reading the old King Jimmy. I like you. You're my people. All right. It says you'll perish, you'll, literally you'll cast off restraint, you'll go crazy, you, you may even quit, you'll live any old kind of life. And so this morning I'd like to do something a bit different, that is, I'd like to offer you nine things, I didn't say three, some of you are going crazy right now, what's a sermon without three points? I don't, there's nine today and you're welcome. Nine things every Christian should see as a part of their own vision for life. There could be more than nine. There certainly are more than nine. But today, you get not eight, not ten, but nine things every Christian should take into them as part of their personal vision statement for life, and especially a vision statement for this church, for Mosaic. And so I want to start with one Bible passage and end with another. Are you ready? Here we go. I want to begin here out reading out of the book of Philippians, probably my favorite passage in the whole Bible, chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal. 
But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Oh, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And that's God's word. And I love this passage because it shows us the first thing that you need to see today about your life and about this church. Your first why. And here it is. Number one. We a lot of these statements are going to read like this. Number one, we are called to love Jesus, not to do church. Well, we didn't get that. All right. I'll try it again. It gets better as we go, apparently. All right. We're called to love Jesus, not to do church. See, Paul doesn't say, I've given everything away for the sake of having a great Sunday routine. He doesn't say, whatever was to my profit, I've given up for the the sake of sitting in a seat every week. No. He doesn't say, I want to know the power of your air conditioner in your building in summer. You know, can your church take the heat in Texas? No. He said, the life I'm living, it's because of who? Oh, Jesus, I've lost all things because of Jesus. And so, friends, church, let's not forget what this whole thing is about today. It's not about playing games. It's not about a a, a light show or or a loud sound. No, not about getting a nice coffee at the coffee bar, although I hope you got a good one or two. Some of you three already. All right. They were free after all. We're here to love Jesus. You know, I've lost count of the times uh, that my wife, Carrie, has said this to me, and I love her for this because she never forgets this. It's, and I've lost count of the times over the years when someone's not so happy about the songs or the series or the sermons or the stuff or the website or the parking or the whatever, and she'll turn to me and she'll say, I thought this whole thing was supposed to be about Jesus. Like, oh, Yeah. It's a good reminder. See, she didn't grow up in church. She didn't become a Christian until she was in college. She's back with the babies today, some of your babies. Uh, She came to Christ later in life. And so, you know, this whole church background expectation thing doesn't really kind of click for her. She's just happy Jesus found her and saved her. And anything she does in the church, with the church, for the church, it's really been because she and we have loved Jesus. See, We're not called to do church. We're called to love Jesus. Amen. Therefore, number two, hope you can see we are carriers of a kingdom, not preservers of an institution. This past week, uh, a friend of mine who's here at Mosaic uh, believes this deeply. He, he told me a story uh, about how he was out on a business trip recently at a, at a work conference out of state. And, uh, and one morning he got up to get some exercise and he went out to run a nearby golf course. And he was out there early so no one would kick him off. Uh, and so he's out there running the course. And, and as he neared the end of the run, uh, again, there had been no one out there. But at the end of the run, here he sees probably the very first golf course worker, this guy who's out there working the course, and as he starts getting closer to the guy, he begins to hear the Holy Spirit speak to him. Holy Spirit says, I want you to go up to this man. This man is from a certain foreign country, a specific country, and this man, tell him, he's, I know he's been practicing voodoo, and I want you, son, to pray for him to see if he wants to get set free. 
Oh, man. And so uh, my friend, you know, his pulse begins to go even higher than it was on the run. He goes to the bathroom maybe to try to get away out of it and get out of it and see if God will leave him alone and see if it was really God speaking to him and not the heat. Uh, But he comes out and he comes up to this course worker and he says, hey, he says, "Um, are you from a certain country? And the man says, yes. How did you know? He says, because God told me. And he told me that you've also been practicing voodoo. And he wants you to repent from that. And I'd love to pray for you. If I can, I pray for you right now to see you get set free from that. And the guy begins to look around and say, I, I, I don't know about that. What if my boss sees me? And the guy says, I've run the whole course. There's nobody out here but us. It's going to be okay. The guy says, sure, you can pray for me. Begins to pray for him. The man repents of his idolatrous practice, comes to know Jesus, begins to weep and hug my sweaty friend. These two men out there on a course come to know Jesus right there. It was a great story, right? I mean, it was a great moment. This man, is a, he's a carrier, see, uh, of God's kingdom. And you say, well, I wish I could do that. You can. You know why? Because you, if you're a Christian, you also are a carrier of God's kingdom, right? Uh, Jesus says the kingdom is within you. Wherever you go, you, you carry that. Peter said, Jesus, oh, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness now. You say, man, well, why haven't I done that? I, well, I don't know, but I do know how you can. It's by having the courage to ask this question, Jesus If I'm a carrier of your kingdom, how can I leak out a little bit of that into the world today? How can I just take some courage right then? See, listen, we're not preservers of an institution. Oh, I love our church. I love our name. I love our website. I love this thing. But we're not here to preserve an institution because if there's one thing that church history has shown us, it's that God is not so much into preserving institutions. Love denominations, love groups, love all of it. But God is into people who carry his kingdom out into the world. Preservers of an institution, oh, they just hope people keep showing up to do this stuff and jump through the hoops. But that's not our heart for you today. I hope you're here. I hope you're here every week. You need to be here. But listen, I want God here. And that's, therefore, I want you here. And I want God out on the golf course and in your home and in your workplace and all there. You get, the, you get the point. We are carriers of a kingdom, not preservers of an institution. Therefore, number three, we are shaped by a community, not chasers of independence. Uh-oh. Uh, when you're a part of this whole kingdom of God thing, you know, under his rule. That means you share life, you're a, you're a fellow citizen with the other citizens in the kingdom, which Paul calls your brothers and sisters or the church, you know, those pesky Christians that keep showing up week in and week out, and, which means your brothers and sisters, again, also known as the church, like a family, also have some claim on your time and, yes, even your schedule. If you've committed, for example, to serve in an area of the church, why not consider scheduling your vacation around the times you've already committed to serve God's people rather than just canceling and throwing it up in the air and hoping that someone else can find someone else to fill in for you? Hmm? Uh Uh-oh, awfully quiet. There's more where that came from. Why not tell that coach when you sign your kid up? Hey, my child's faith commitment 
comes before his sports commitment. I'm not raising an athlete. I'm raising a person, a wholehearted follower of Jesus. You say, well, God never thought of stuff like that. Hmm. See, when your community of faith shapes you, it gets down into stuff like your time and your schedule. We are shaped by a community, not chasers of independence, appropriate on July 4th of all times, right? See, who knows how you're really doing? Who knows how your marriage is really going? What's your kids really think of you? How your walk with God is really going? Is there anyone close enough to you today to ask those questions and not only ask those questions, but to have you stay in relationship with that person because you're not just going to get offended and walk away because they asked and pressed you. But if you're just a chaser of independence, you'll get, you'll get irritated. You'll get offended when you, ask, when you get asked those questions because, see, your time's all yours Family's all yours. Finances are all yours. You can't see how your life affects the community. We're shaped by a community, not chasers of independence. And therefore, it brings us to see this, that we are lovers of the poor, not just seekers of the rich. Lovers of the poor, not just seekers of the rich. And let me illustrate it this way. Uh, one of my favorite, actually, Bible ironies is the gospel of Luke. You say, well, gosh, how's that's an irony? Uh, listen, like this. Luke was a physician, likely a, a wealthy person. And the book, the gospel of Luke, was written by this wealthy person to another wealthy person named Theophilus. And Theophilus was likely a patron. He was the donor. He was the, the financier, a rich guy, for the gospel of Luke. And who, though, does Luke, this rich guy, who writes the gospel to this rich guy, who does he say... And who does he show that Jesus goes to over and over again? Oh, if you read it, you know. It's the outsider. It's the outcast. The poor all the way down until you get to this brilliant summary statement of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lifestyles of the rich and famous. No, no. He says, of the lost. The lost, the missing, right? Those whom everyone else has forgotten, but God hasn't. Listen, I'm glad, so glad to live in America, a land of an opportunity and in general abundance. I'm glad for every rich, wealthy person here. I would be in that category. So is every person with a household income of 50 grand or more a year. Again, if that's you, congratulations. At church, you found out you were rich, right? That's why you came. You're the top 1% of wage earners in the world, if that's you. Luke, Theophilus, maybe you, me, let's love, aim the gospel, see, at the poor together. And if we'll do this, if we'll do number four, it's just going to remind us of number five, that we are on a mission, not a vacation. And again, oh, I hope you take a vacation. I hope you take the best vacation ever, especially if you've got a family Take those moments, make those memories, and some of my best moments and memories as a dad have been on trips with my kids. And last summer, our family went and we stayed for a few days on a lake in the middle of nowhere in Texas. And I'm not this really outdoorsy guy, in case you hadn't figured that out yet, but I went fishing with my boys. We went to catch some catfish, and it was a a real highlight. And I learned a couple of things along the way, which I'm going to pass on to you now. I learned, number one, that if you buy worms that have green phosphorescence injected in them, 
Your kids will be absolutely grossed out. No one will put the, the, the worm on the hook. You'll be forced to do all the work yourself. And I learned, learned number two, a more important lesson, that you get what you pay for when it comes to buying a fillet knife all right, to clean the said catfish. And I bought the cheapest one that the, that the Walmart in Cleveland, Texas would sell me, y'all. And Listen, when it's 10 o'clock at night and you've promised your daughter some fish and you've got to take the, the stabbing the catfish through the head to put it out of its misery because it won't cut squat. Hey, let's just say there's some things your daughter can't unsee. All right. It's meant to take that vacation. Listen, your lawn can wait. That project can wait. You're growing children, not grass. So take a trip and go with your friends, kids. But listen. What's the trajectory of your life aimed at? Hmm? Vacation or mission? Jesus' final words, they kind of put it in perspective for us. In Matthew chapter 28, he said it like this. Maybe you know what he said. Go into all the world and make disciples unless the culture doesn't like you or the person you didn't vote for becomes president. Or unless the Supreme Court makes a decision you didn't like and you should be outraged and curse people on social media and ridicule the other side and take your money and go buy extra ammo and water and food and go live in the desert. Then you don't have to do that. Did I offend all of you yet? Does everybody get everybody there? I think. Make disciples, he said, unless the Christian label is unpopular and the Bible is unpopular and it's seen as regressive and out of date. Oh, Listen, y'all, the Bible will never seem current. It'll never be current because it's eternal. See, the New Testament doesn't say it's the current word of God. It's the eternal word of God. What it said about the Roman Empire was unpopular in the first century when it came out, right? What it said about the African slave trade in the 1800s was unpopular. What it said about race is unpopular in the 1960s. And what it says about gender and sex is unpopular now. Your goal, our goal as a Christian, as a church, is not to win a popularity contest. Our call isn't a current one. It's an eternal one. And there's a difference. Jesus told this group of people, go make disciples. The heart of which he said is to obey him. Wow. Obey him. Which is maybe the most arrogant thing a person could possibly say. Unless they're the son of God. If Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is the Messiah, the conqueror of death, then guess what? His command to you to obey him is at least, if not more loving, than the command you parents give your kids to obey you, right? Because if he's God, he's just going to be smarter than you. And if we'll do that, if we'll make disciples, no matter the cultural temperature or time or day or age we live in, he said he would be with us us and here's what that being with us doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you may not get sick right it doesn't mean that you won't experience trouble inconvenience a bad sermon on the first time you came to church today oh wait it may it doesn't mean you're not going to find some terrible parkers and drivers in that parking lot on the way out or maybe a misspelled word in the bulletin he said no go make disciples to a group of people who were tortured and executed for doing it. They were the most unpopular people in the Roman Empire. 
their power didn't come, their influence didn't come from organizing a moral majority, but from winning one person, one family, one household, the book of Acts says, at a time. Discipleship isn't complicated. It's really simple. It's just one word. You ready for it? Here's what discipleship is. Discipleship is relationship. Relationship. Just having a relationship with someone, being there for them in their time of need, inspiring them to serve Jesus with you. You don't have to be Bible educated, thank God, to do that, although it may help you. Sometimes it doesn't, actually. You don't have to have been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years to do it. It may help you. Sometimes it doesn't. But God wants to use you now to influence someone around you. Now, go for it. Number six, therefore, we're called to minister to people, not to perform. Not to perform. Uh, I was having another conversation, because I have conversations, with another friend of mine here uh, at Mosaic this past week. This guy is an artist. He does amazing work. And he said the most amazing thing to me. It stuck with me all week. Uh, this guy is a great artist. He can do it all, work in any medium. And he said, you know, Morgan, he said, I've been to museums all over the world. And do you know what the problem with most modern art is? He said the reason most people don't like modern art, don't go to see modern art, is because it's not aimed at serving people, speaking to people. It's aimed at impressing art critics or pleasing donors because hardly anybody can make it as an artist if they don't have somebody to fund them. He said, but hardly any of it is aimed at you or me. It's just a, just a performance there's no service to people's hearts involved. And he said, all true art is really just serving people something of God's world they hadn't seen before. I thought, man, that's a great thought. I like that. He's saying art can be just a performance or it can be more. It can be a ministry. It can be a service. Just like your work today. Oh, your work, your job, it can be just a performance, or it can be ministry, service to the world. What we do up here on Sundays, it's not just performance, not just songs or sermons, you know, with polls taken, thin slice to see what our demographic likes. It's supposed to bring you something to Jesus. Bring you something of who he is, which is, by the way, why you get up in the morning, right? And you spend time in the Bible, the Bible. Remember the Bible, the Bible. We love the Bible. We spend time with our heavenly father who is for you. He wants to abide with you. You abide with him when you sit in his presence, when you push away the email and the internet and all that stuff. And you just say, God, speak to me. Talk to me. I love you. I love your word. Now you can have something to give, to minister to people. And fathers especially, you're called to be ministers in your home, in your house. Not just just to put on some sort of authority trip, right? Authority performance. And I know this can be tough sometimes. It's been tough for me. I, I remember when our kids were four, count them, three, two, and zero. Uh, four, three, two, zero. The oldest was still four when the fourth was born. yes. I remember I had to, when I came home from work, sometimes I'd, I'd park around the corner for like five minutes just to get myself psyched up to go in through the door and handle the children. I try to be a hero for my wife. You say, that sounds weird. No, it's normal if you've ever been there. 
You just got to get yourself psyched up sometimes. I'd sit in my car. I would worship. I'd speak out of my mouth that like one Bible verse I could remember from the morning. And I'd ask for God's grace to come help me. Serve my family. Serve my kids. Serve my wife. Fill their hearts with his love. And by the way, as far as ministry to your wife goes, men, most of the time, I found that looks a lot like doing the dishes. Doing the dishes. All the wives said... Amen. All right. We're called to minister, not perform. Therefore, number seven, we are ministers of reconciliation, not keepers of our own culture. Uh, You say, what does that mean? I'm going to spend a few minutes on this one. To be a minister of reconciliation doesn't mean that you got to drop your culture or your ethnic heritage when you become a Christian. You don't drop your blackness, your brownness, your whiteness. You don't drop those things. You say, well, how can I know this? How do you know this? Two ways. Number one, book of Revelation, chapter 21. It shows us there, this vision John has of the eternal city of God. What God's future, heavenly future, looks like. And it says this. It says the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. I love that. This is saying each culture, oh, each, each ethnic group brings particular cultural gifts to the glory of God. It's amazing. And second, when Jesus was raised from the dead, when he received his, hang with me, his resurrection body, He maintained all his human particularities. That is, he was still a man. He was still male. He didn't become female. He was still Jewish. Didn't become a Gentile. He he didn't become as as genderless, uh, opaque, see-through ghost of a God. This tells us that our distinctive skin color, it's intentional. It's given by God. And it won't just melt away. When God comes to make the world new, it's a mistake then to think those things are just superficial and to insist that we ought to just drop our distinctives and be Christians together. Because will we drop our distinctives in heaven? No, no. Then surely God doesn't want us to drop them here. But the question still remains, well, how do we handle those things in a multicultural church context? Do we, how do we use those things? Do we just say, hey, you'll never understand what it's like to be me? That's a true statement. I could say that to my wife all day. That's a conversation killer. It's the worst thing you could ever say in a relationship. You'll never understand. Of course they won't. No one understands what it's like to be you or you or you or you. It, the conversation ends. You should banish that. You should say, let me try to help you understand what it's like to be me. Here's where I'm coming from. See, way, way better. So how do we handle our God-given differences? One of the most amazing case studies that sees us, tells us how we can handle it is found in the Bible by cross-examining these two great case studies of two churches in the first century, one in Rome, one in Corinth, both of whom are having these ethnic and cultural conflicts over, you ready, food. The church picnic, right, the, the potluck, they were fighting over the potluck. And they were in Rome, in this one church, there were these Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians, because of their cultural background, they had a blind spot. They were having a hard time eating food that had formerly been forbidden 
under the Mosaic law and covenant. But in that same church, these, these Greek Greco-Roman Christians, they were formerly pagans. Oh, they had no trouble firing up the grill, throwing on some pig, right? Making some ribs, adding some tasty bacon to their breakfast tacos because they understood the gospel rightly. It's not what comes, you know, out, excuse me, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man. And those former pagans, uh, the Greco-Roman Christians, they saw their other culture, their, their friend's blind spot, but they were using it to disdain them, look down on them, because these Jewish Christians were having a hard time bringing their culture under the lordship of Jesus and his word. But over in Corinth, other city, it was the opposite. These Greek Christians there, again, they had come out of this culture. It sacrificed food to idols. Oh, they couldn't even go to the grocery store meat section anymore. Because in the meat section, it had stuff on it like, blessed by Zeus. Approved, inspected by Hermes, you know. And these Greek Christians, they would see their Jewish friends going over to the meat section, loading up the cart. And the Jewish Christians, they would just laugh at those labels because they knew, like Paul, that Zeus was a joke, right? I mean, the food might as well, it says blessed by Zeus. It it might as well have been blessed by Darth Vader, you know, or Yoda or something. Not even real. But then those Jewish Christians were looking down on their Greek brothers and sisters because their Greek brothers and sisters were blind in that area. They were having trouble bringing their culture under the lordship of Jesus and his word, which said that an idol is nothing at all. Each ethnic group had strengths, places in which they were strong in the gospel. Each had a place where they were weak, but their pride about being right was ruining the relationships in the church. So what did Paul say? Well, to both groups, Paul said, I'd rather have you put that cultural thing you're strong in on the back burner rather than keep it and cause your brother to stumble for whom Christ died. Couldn't force them to drop their distinctive, nor was he saying distinctives aren't good things. The Bible's already said that. But he's saying you are using your own cultural uniqueness to disdain your brother disdain your sister look down on them and you can't do that you can see into their culture they can see into yours as well see as important as our distinctives are and they are the bible never calls us keepers of our own culture you know it does call us ministers of reconciliation hmm ministers of reconciliation how does that look i'll put it like this i hear it from people in my culture all the time they ask why should i ever apologize for something i didn't do probably referencing slavery or some of the cultural sin to which i would say two things which i do number one if i can win someone's heart that much closer to jesus by just saying man i'm sorry for the way that people like me have treated people like you i'm sorry for the way it's affected your family through the generations if i can say that and bring them that much closer to knowing jesus and seeing them forgive and have their heart being reconciled and all it costs me is a little bit of image or pride maybe why not man line people up i'll do it all day And number two, second, wasn't Jesus' crucifixion basically his way of apologizing to God and standing in your place for all the sin you committed, but he didn't, right? Didn't he take the blame and the consequences for all the stuff he didn't do, but you did on your behalf? Yeah. Why? Because he wasn't a keeper of his own culture. He is a minister of reconciliation. 
In what way, friend, would you, would we be willing to empty of ourselves, even our preferences, so that others can know Jesus? If you can do that, if you can see that, then number eight, you can see then that we are people who can do difficult things, not just easy things. It was just as quiet this service as the last. Okay, all right. Listen, listen. All the easy people have already been reached. All the easy churches have already been planted. All the easy problems have already been tackled. All the easy marriages have already been fixed. All the easy community groups have already been formed. It's like that pastor, a friend of mine recently, who said to me, when I said to him, look, we want to make this thing in our church, develop this discipleship mechanism where we have and help people have better conversations about stuff like race or culture, ethnicity or politics or sex. And he looked at me and he said, good luck. I said, good luck. And you know what I said? I said nothing to him. I didn't want to disrespect the man. He's a great leader in our city. I thought, though, here's what I thought. I thought, you know what? All due respect, we don't need luck. The people at Mosaic are people who can do hard things. People who, Mosaic are people who can do hard things. And you know what? I don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't want to do hard things. I don't want to be a church, that, a part of a church that won't give or sacrifice, that won't go to tough places, or, or let me just phrase it positively. I want to be a part of a group of people, and I believe I am, who can forgive those who've wronged them, right? Who can be a part of something that can, who knows, start new stuff and start new churches, God willing, even though it may cost us. I want to be a part of something that takes multicultural, multigenerational discipleship making church seriously, takes redemption seriously. I believe we can do that. I believe God's called us to do that. About two weeks ago, I had a dream. Uh-oh. Uh, a dream? think it was from God. I got lots of dreams all the time. Most of them are kind of weird or stressful or something like that, or I forget them. And, you know, you may have dreams too. There can be funny things. If you feel like, man, that's maybe God's speaking to me, check it out with a friend or pastor. And by the way, if you don't think God speaks to people in dreams, you're going to have a hard time with the Bible and people like Joseph or Daniel or, I don't know, Paul and people like that. But God can still do that. And in my dream, I was standing out in our beloved parking lot, beloved parking lot with the lines, looking at our entrance, and it's like I saw these waves of sound, like a bell had been rung, and these waves of sound and life and energy going out into the city. And I thought, you know, I, I woke up, I thought, you know what, that's the sound of people who can do hard things for Jesus. Oh, friends, there's a sound God wants to release through every church in this city, but uniquely, through ours. It's a sound of people who can do hard things, not just easy things, hard things for Jesus. And here in the end, ultimately, here's why we can. Number nine, it's because we have a better why, a better why. And this thought is taken from Mark 15. And here in Mark 15, it's near the end of Jesus' life. And in Mark 15, we see Jesus. He's been arrested. He's been put on trial. He's been falsely accused of these things that he didn't do. And the Jewish leaders in his day had handed him over to the Roman prefect, the leader of Israel at the time, 
a man named Pilate. And Pilate, yeah, we see in the story in Mark 15, he's beginning to see through the Jewish leaders' uh, pretense. He's seeing it's a scam, it's a sham. He's seeing they just hate him, they're falsely accusing him. And he's seeing that Jesus, whoever this guy was, had done nothing to deserve death. But instead of doing the right thing, the just thing, look at what Pilate does. Verse 9, Mark 15, he said, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, meaning Jesus, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. He knew what was going on. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas. Instead, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now think about this. You are, you're Pontius Pilate. You're the most powerful man in the room, in the land, in the city. You got one job. It's to judge rightly justly you got one chance here to to do the right thing to to change history to go down as someone with with courage and conviction and a backbone but you don't do it you you give in right you you compromise capitulate why why verse 15 says it says because he wanted to do what satisfy the crowd satisfy the crowd and listen if you or I or we, if you, if you live your life based on what other people think about you, based on a desire to be a people pleaser or a crowd pleaser, to even to satisfy the crowd of self, right? You will always release into the world a substandard version of yourself or your work or your faith. You say, well, how do you know that? Look, look, what did Pilate, who did Pilate release out in the world? It was Barabbas. And do you know what Barabbas literally means? It literally means son of the father. Son of the Father. See, on one hand, Pilate has in front of him a son of the Father, the criminal Barabbas. And on the other hand, he has the son of the Father, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, but Pilate released something that sounded similar. It sounded kind of the same. It looked kind of the same. It was the thing that would please the crowd. But it didn't change their lives. It just satisfied their lusts. Listen, you and I, we can never become all God's called us to be until we stop wanting to satisfy the crowd. The crowd may be your boss, maybe your roommate, your teammates, your buddies at school, your roommates, who know, may even be your own family at some level. But if you only want, if your why is to satisfy the crowd, you'll always release into the world a substandard, corrupted version of yourself or your faith. You say, oh man, I'm doing that. How do I, how do I get free? like this. The first step is just asking yourself the same question Pilate asked. What do we do? What do I do with the king of the Jews? What do I do with Jesus? See, in a way, we all have the same choice as Pilate did that day. One day, the Bible says, we'll all walk into another courtroom with Jesus. Stand before a holy judge and be asked, what did you do with my son? What do you say about him? Did you believe his word or the word of the crowd? 
It's our choice today. And to, to become a Christian is to say, Jesus, I believe that you went on trial for me. I believe you were betrayed for me. I believe that you went to death and you were resurrected for me. All because you love me and you gave yourself for me. That I wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And because of that, I'm going to trust you to save me from myself. I'm going to listen to you and not the crowd. See, to become a Christian, it's like the most subversive thing you could ever do because you're saying at that point, I'm done with being Pontius Pilate. I'm done with it. I'm done wanting to satisfy the crowd. I'm done with that being the why for my life. And to become a Christian is to say what Paul said all the way back at the beginning. I've got a vision for my life. It's greater than the crowd. It's to take hold of the thing for which Jesus took a hold of me. Paul lived with a better why. And so can we. And living that life of vision, church vision, personal vision always comes down to that single question. Why am I doing this? Is it for the crowd or for Jesus? And when our hearts are after him first, you know what we can do. We can do all this other stuff. Man, we can be ministers of reconciliation, not keepers of our own culture. We can do the hard thing. We can minister, not perform, not just do church, but really, really, really love him and have a sound come from our lives and from this place. I hope you'll say amen to that.